Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Diagnosing and Treating Dementia, Current Best Practices. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on July 30, 2019. In this podcast, Dr. David Rubin, Director of the Program in Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology at UCLA, gives an overview of the prevalence as well as diagnosing and current treatments for dementia. The first slide here actually has the uh, faces of uh, five very famous people. Uh, And what do these people all have in common? They all have uh, dementia. And this is just a way of putting a face to a terrible, terrible disease that nobody is uh, spared of. Next slide, please. What is dementia? In 2011, the National Institute on Aging came up with a new definition of dementia. And that required that it was an acquired chronic decline in cognition that was not explained by either uh, a uh, delirium, which is an acute confusional state, or a psychiatric disorder. And it had to have dysfunction in at least two domains. The first is memory. That's delaying down and recalling information. Reasoning and handling of complex tasks, this is what we call executive function, the kind of planning that we do. The third is uh, visual spatial impairment, and that's uh, being able to to recognize uh, sometimes faces and sometimes objects. Uh, And then impaired language function, that's naming things, that's that's being able to uh, process conversations and then changes in personality or behavior. So these are the five areas that are affected by dementia. It used to be before 2011 definition that memory had to be a a feature, but no longer. It just has to have two out of the five. And then the other key component that is absolutely necessary is that these disorders of, of cognition need to get in the way. They have to affect somebody's daily life and daily function. Next slide, please. When I'm teaching students, I like to refer to dementia as the gray plague. And it is a disorder of aging. Uh, So between the ages of 65 to 74 years of age, roughly 3 to 5% of the population has dementia. But as people get older, particularly that 85 and older age group, that it, the, uh, the prevalence range is between 35% and about 50%. And, and that means that uh, the likelihood is that by the age of 85 or, or older, that either you or your spouse or your brother or your sister will, will have this disorder. Uh, and I would, I would be willing to guarantee that if we we live long enough that everybody on this call will be affected by this disease. So people ask me a lot, what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? And dementia is the overriding term, the umbrella term, and Alzheimer's disease is by far the most common form of disease. Other common forms are vascular dementia, that's usually small strokes, uh, dementia with Lewy bodies or with Parkinson's disease, but these are, are relatively uncommon. 
Next slide, please. This disease is exceptionally common, this disorder. Uh, about 5.8 million Americans currently have it, and that's more than the number of Americans who have heart failure. And this is expected to triple uh, between now and 2050. Uh, it affects uh, people of all uh, ethnicities, but, uh, but Latina and um, African Americans seem to be affected more commonly, a bit more commonly. And about a quarter of people who uh, are uh, affected are duly insured. Uh, this has a tremendous economic burden, not only on the healthcare system, but on uh, unpaid caregivers who provide uh, over 80% of the care and at a tremendous cost to their own personal lives. You'll hear more about that in a bit. Next slide, please. I like to think about uh, Alzheimer's disease in specific, the most common, as a two-phase strategy. And thinking, looking first to the right-hand side of this slide, where we think about 2030. And this is where uh, all of the research, or much of the research, is going into. By that point, 7.7 uh, million Americans will have dementia. And at that time, uh, we will have a, uh, a way of identifying people who are at risk of developing dementia. And this is likely will be a blood test. And you think about this as an analogy to coronary heart disease, where you can get a cholesterol level that is a predictor. And already there are some, some candidates that, uh, and some tests that are being developed and similarly, not only to identify the risk factor, but also be able to monitor whether somebody is, is converting from having the risk factor to actually having the disease. We hope to have good preventive strategies. Uh, we uh, will be able to detect Alzheimer's disease. We hope to have better treatments. And uh, still, there will be a lot of need for support for both patients and caregivers. But going to the left-hand side of the slide, where we are now with 5.8 million Americans with dementia, what we have is detection. We have some good ways to detect dementia. We'll talk about those in a few moments. Uh, we have uh, treatments that aren't very effective, and we have a tremendous need for support. Next slide, please. So beginning with detection, uh, the first step is screening. And this is uh, taking people who are kind of all comers and identifying that they uh, that something is not right. Uh, there are many ways to do this uh, that are are well validated. Uh, some of the simple ways are a three-item recall, where you ask them to recall three words. Uh, you distract them uh, and talk about something else, and then you ask them about the three words again. Uh, one way of doing this is an instrument called the MINICOG, which uh, is basically a three-item recall sandwich, and in the middle of the sandwich is a clock uh, that you ask uh, the patient to draw. Uh, there are several others. One is the mini mental state examination, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which is also called the MOCA, and, and, and dozens more. The, uh, the good news about these tests is they all are pretty good. They're all pretty good at identifying people who have something wrong, who have uh, uh, dementia. Um, 
and uh, but they do not establish the diagnosis. So if somebody fails one of these tests, you can't say they absolutely have dementia. In 2014, the U.S. Preventive Task Services Task Force uh, came out with a paper, and that paper uh, weighed the benefits and, uh, and harms of screening. And the conclusion they came to was they could not come up with a firm recommendation because the evidence base wasn't there. Now, this does not mean that you should not screen for dementia, but it also does not mean that you absolutely should. So it's much more kind of an individual practice and an individual case-by-case -case, um, determination. Next slide, please. So going from having an increased uh, suspicion failing uh, a, a screening test is to make the diagnosis, you need a clinician's examination. So the clinician's examination needs to go into some historical items, such as when did the symptoms begin uh, and what were the symptoms. Uh, they forgot to pay bills. They got uh, missed some appointments. Uh, they have repeated questioning. They don't seem to be retaining something. They're becoming more irritable, those kinds of things. And you specifically want to ask about behavioral complications. Are they having agitation? Are they having trouble with sleeping? Are they irritable? Um, are there some personality changes? And then you have to ask about functional status. Are they able to perform their daily activities, things they used to do? And, and here, that's a key point, it's things that they used to do. So if they've never cooked before, asking them about cooking may, may not be quite so relevant. Then the clinician needs to do a neurologic examination. This can be relatively brief. Uh, you want to be looking for uh, findings that might indicate a previous stroke, uh, such as asymmetries or, or weakness. You want to uh, examine the gait. Uh, looking for asymmetry, and, and partly this is to try to prevent complications such as falls that we see commonly with dementia. And then you want to do a brief assessment for uh, Parkinson's symptoms because that can be uh, one of the causes of dementia. Next slide, please. So then the clinician needs to do a mental status examination, and this is exceptionally important. Uh, it's, it's really critical in making the diagnosis. So you want to test somebody's memory, and that includes recall of items, uh, similar to the three-item recall. But also, uh, I like to ask about um, uh, current, current events. And these are current events not that are particularly esoteric, but that everybody would know. Um, uh, one of the things I also like to do is I like to go through a little bit of, uh, of politics, who is the president, who is the vice president, things that, that people uh, their age should know. And then I also like to go to uh, some more what we call remote memory. And that remote memory, I typically like to look for overlearned behaviors uh, or overlearned uh, uh, memories. So, for example, uh, one of the things that I'll do is I'll ask them what happened to President Kennedy. And uh, 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 he was assassinated. Uh, where was he assassinated? In Dallas, who assassinated him? Lee Harvey Oswald. What happened to Oswald? 
he was assassinated, who assassinated him, uh, Jack Ruby. And this is almost like having a dipstick to determine how deep their memory goes. Uh, the 9-11 um, attack, uh, Pearl Harbor, there are a number of examples that I, I tend to use. Language and um, fluency. So here we do a test that's uh, very easy to do called the animal naming test. And we uh, pretend that we're sending somebody to a, a zoo or a jungle or a farm and ask them to name as many animals as they can in one minute. Uh, 18 is normal. If people are below 10, it, it's really a source of concern. Uh, problem solving, this is an executive function. Uh, so I pretend I'm going to send them to the grocery store. I want them to buy bread for me. The bread is 75 cents a loaf. I want them to buy two loaves. I'm going to give them $2. How much change do they get back? And then I send them to the fish counter, and I ask them to buy salmon, which is $8 a pound. I want them to buy half a pound. I give them $5. Uh, the key to this is always use the same example, or else you'll get tripped up. Um, I also have them do a clock drawing test. And that is very valuable both for executive function in terms of planning where the numbers are going and also the uh, visual spatial. Typically what happens when people make mistakes, it'll be in that upper quadrant between uh, 9 o'clock and, and midnight. Uh, they'll either have too many numbers uh, remaining or they'll run out of numbers because of poor planning. And then there are some uh, instruments that you can use to identify complications. The neuropsychiatric uh, inventory uh, identifies behavioral symptoms and caregivers' responses to them. And then the Cornell and, uh, scale for depression and dementia can identify uh, how severe uh, uh, persons with uh, the, the disorder uh, dementia, uh, depression is. Next slide, please. So I would say that uh, in roughly 80% of the people that I see and evaluate for dementia, my clinical examination is sufficient, and I, I can pretty well make the diagnosis. But there's another 20% or so that, that I can't. Uh, they may either have been very, very high-functioning, brilliant people, and I, I just can't be sure. So then I would send them for neuropsychological testing, which are similar kinds of tests, but they're, they're longer and, and more difficult. And here, uh, these are exceptionally valuable both in, in making the diagnosis, but also uh, uh, establishing where the deficits are and where the strengths are. And sometimes they can also give you patterns as to what the, the cause of the dementia is. Uh, we also order lab tests, and these are primarily to exclude conditions that may look like dementia, but probably aren't dementia, and but they may be contributing to cognitive impairment. And these include a, a complete blood count, uh, a comprehensive metabolic panel, uh, thyroid tests, and B12 tests, and only among those people who have uh, specific risk factors for uh, syphilis or HIV, those would be tested as well. Next slide, please. The next category of diagnostic testing are neuroimaging and cerebral spinal fluid testing. And that requires a spinal tap or lumbar puncture for the CSF testing. Neuroimaging is really the purview of the primary care physician. They, they can order those tests. But typically, the CSF testing is only done after consultation with a neurologist. 
The neural imaging, these are uh, the, uh, the, the imaging of the brain, uh, are most useful for people who develop early onset dementia below uh, the age of 60, or if they have a focal deficits such as uh, weakness on one side or another, uh, or abrupt onset or rapid decline, or other predisposing conditions such as uh, cerebrovascular disease or cancer or they're on blood thinners. The two tests that are used most common are the CT or CAT scan or MRI. Uh, the MRI is a little more sensitive in detecting uh, different causes of dementia, particularly vascular causes. Uh, the, uh, there are two other tests that I'll mention. One is called the PET scan or positive uh, tron emission tomography. And this is an approved test by uh, Medicare to distinguish between Alzheimer's disease and frontal temporal degeneration. Uh, other, uh, there are certain requirements that are uh, pretty easily uh, available to find that must be met before Medicare will cover for this, but it will cover it. And uh, the last test I'm going to mention only because you'll hear more about that, and that is called the amyloid PET scan, which is able to identify one of the precursor abnormalities to the development of Alzheimer's disease. But currently, this is only being used for research purposes only, and it is not covered by uh, Medicare or other insurances. Next slide, please. So uh, once the diagnosis of dementia has been established, then, uh, then the, uh, the disorder needs to be managed. And here, uh, you need to work with the patients and their caregivers. Uh, it, is, it is a lifelong disease. Uh, this is, there's no cure for dementia. And it has to be an individualized, patient-centered approach. Uh, everybody who has dementia is, uh, is unique. Uh, early on in the disease, you really want to get the patient involved, particularly in, in determining preferences and who's going to speak for them. And as the degrees, disease progresses, it must uh, rely much more on uh, caregivers and family members. The goal is to uh, aim for the highest level of independence and self-determination for the person with disease that works for everyone. And here, uh, works for everyone is very important because uh, what we see frequently is that everything is being done to try to preserve independence for the person, but uh, all the caregivers are burning out, and, and eventually that system, that situation cannot uh, be sustained. Next slide, please. So the, uh, the principles of, of managing this disease, first of all, managing common challenging issues. Uh, one of the ones we see very frequently is, is getting people to stop driving. Uh, another one that is uh, commonly uh, uh, encountered is, is when the person needs to have uh, additional help in the home or cannot live in their own home. Uh, the second is to manage the symptoms uh, of the disease. And um, uh, these start generally with behavioral therapies and then, uh, if need be, uh, drug management. Uh, advanced care planning. Uh, because this disease is relentless and progressive, uh, there, most people who have this disease will come to their end of their life within about 
uh, six to ten years, and the earlier you can plan for what the person's wishes are and keeping them involved in this, the better it is. Care management and coordination, these people have complications both of their other medical illnesses and their uh, dementia. Managing these other illnesses is incredibly important in caregiver support. Next slide, please. Uh, medications, uh, the medications uh, uh, fall into two categories in terms of managing the disease. The first are cholinesterase inhibitors. Uh, and the trade names for these are uh, Zinepazil, Galantamine, and Rivastigmine. Uh, there is a Rivastigmine patch. All the other ones uh, are oral, and they're all generic at this point. Uh, the important thing, however, to remember is that the benefit of these drugs is very modest. Uh, maybe 10% approved, 20% uh, it slows the decline but does not prevent decline, and the remainder don't get much benefit at all. Uh, it's, it appears to be valuable in most causes of dementia, except for um, frontal temporal degeneration, and it actually may exacerbate some symptoms there. And then finally, it's very important to know that these drugs have not been shown to prevent the progression of um, uh, mild cognitive impairment to dementia. Uh, next slide, please. There uh, is another drug that is uh, uh, available, which is called memantine, which is also uh, generic at this point, and it is approved only for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the evidence behind it is not all that strong, uh, and they have looked at combining it with a cholinesterase inhibitor, and once again, uh, the benefit is not all that strong. Next, next slide, please. So there are a list, a long list of drugs that have been tried and have, do not influence uh, the course of dementia and have not been helpful. I won't go through the entire list, but uh, it has been a tremendous disappointment that we've not been able to uh, develop new drugs that have been effective. Next slide, please. So uh, managing behavioral and psychological complications, this is exceptionally important. And there is uh, good evidence for formal uh, caregiver training. You'll hear more about this from uh, David Bass. Uh, music therapy has some, uh, some evidence behind it, although it's not uh, all that strong. And then the other ones, such as cognitive stimulations, reminiscent therapy, um, uh, pet therapy, uh, these kinds of things, have very limited evidence when conducted, when studied in, in, uh, in trials. However, that doesn't mean that an in, any given individual may not may benefit from this. So that uh, there's a lot of things that can be tried. Some of them are just not uh, evidence-based for the larger population. Next slide, please. So uh, there are also drugs that are used, uh, antidepressants. Uh, there's some evidence of uh, that it, there's benefit to some of these on uh, agitation, but it may actually cause the cognition to decline more quickly. Uh, there's a whole uh, uh, group of drugs called the atypical uh, antipsychotics. These are quetiapine and melanzapine, uh, haloperidol, et cetera. 
They're not very effective, but it's similar to other kinds of treatments. A few patients will benefit here and there, and for some of these patients, it's exceptionally beneficial. Uh, they do have a high potential for side effects. They increase the risk of mortality, uh, essentially double it from about 2.5% to about 5%. So you have to have these discussions with patients and their families. Uh, some other new drugs, uh, there's a new drug called uh, dextromethorphan uh, quinidine combination. It's one study showed some benefit, but it was once again modest. And then there are a number of drugs, mostly anti-seizure drugs, that are used uh, in the treat management of dementia, but there's little evidence for it. Next slide. So uh, support for unpaid caregivers. Uh, I like to say that uh, caregivers are the most important resource a person with dementia has, and about half of the caregivers will develop depression. Uh, the more educated they are and the more empowered a caregiver is, the better the care will be. And David Das will talk more about this in just a moment. Next slide, please. And uh, you'll hear also from, from uh, David and from Michelle Panlilio about some new models of comprehensive uh, care for dementia. And these are, are uh, models that focus not only on the caregiver, not only giving caregiver support, but also on making sure that the patient gets uh, the most uh, quality, high-quality care. Uh, so there are two big categories of these, one that are based in communities, typically at senior centers, uh, and you'll hear about the BRI care consultation models, and another one is a, a home-based model uh, called MIND. And then there are health system-based models that, are, that, are, that reach out to the community. Uh, one of them is called the Indiana uh, Helping Aging Brain Center. And you'll hear more about the UCLA Alzheimer's and Dementia Care Program from Michelle. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare and Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.